when I think about the book of Genesis, the one thing that I can't help but be reminded of is that God deeply cares about humans flourishing in life. Like God wants us to flourish. From the moment that we watched God create Adam and Eve reaching down into that dirt and willing to shape and to breathe the breath of life into Adam, the moment that he put Adam in a deep sleep and and took the side from Adam and, and, and shaped Eve for him, that first man and woman created in the image of God, God was communicating to all people subsequently, I care about you. I want you to thrive in this earth, on this planet as human beings. God wants men to be great men. God wants women to be great women. God wants families to function and to be healthy and to be victorious. Our God cares about human beings flourishing on planet earth for his glory, for our satisfaction. We were made and created in the image of God. That means we belong to him and we get the joy of reflecting him and being satisfied in him and in the life that he has given to us. Beloved, we must reject any lie that comes to us from culture or society that tells us that God does not want the very best for us. We must reject all religions and irreligious ideas that come to us and say that God doesn't want us to experience life. It's a lie. God wants us to have full life. Remember remember what Jesus said in John chapter 10 where he says, The thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. The thief comes to murder and to lie and to lead us down a dark path. The thief comes to distract us and to play upon our sinful nature so that we will be broken. He wants us to die spiritually, economically, sexually, socially, culturally. The thief wants to kill us. But Jesus said, I have come that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And there is a lie that's telling us otherwise. You and I must believe. We must embrace God as our creator and the one who loves us and wants to shape and form us for a victorious life. Paul said to the Romans, God has made us more than conquerors through him who loved us. Paul said to to the Philippians, we can do all things through him who gives us strength. Amen? This is a great thing. But listen to me, and this is where it gets tough and where it gets tricky. A critical dimension of God's love for our lives is discipline. A critical dimension of God shaping us and helping us to flourish is to reproof, to rebuke, to correct, and to train us in sometimes painfully intimate ways. Can I get an amen? And the world wants us to think that love is a lack of discipline. Love is a lack of reproof. Love is a lack of correction. 
The world wants us to define love as philosophically tolerant where we don't have any kind of conversation, where we can't be in a room and have a persuasive conversation to convince each other that we should walk in a certain way or live a certain way. And, and, and the world tells us that if God is loving, he won't correct us in any way. He will just let us do whatever we want to do. And it's a lie. Love cannot exist without truth. Because without truth, love is meaningless. It's, I hate to say it like this. I don't mean to be overly sarcastic or, or heartless, but it's just fluffy, isn't it? It's just silly and shallow. You know, my dad used to tell me all the time, <laughs> I love you too much to let you get away with this. Amen? Right? My dad was wonderfully, beautifully cliche. This hurts me more than it hurts you. Right? He disciplined me. He trained me. He caught me. And he used to always tell me, you know what? I love you, but I'm going to correct you. Listen to these. I've been reading Psalms. I, I, you know, lately, sometimes I just don't feel like I'm, I'm very wise. I want to grow in wisdom, don't you? I want to be a wise man. I want, I want people to say, Pastor Josh was pretty wise. And I, I don't think I'm there yet, right? And so I like to read Proverbs. And Proverbs talks about wisdom. And Proverbs says, in Proverbs chapter 1, Solomon quotes wisdom. And he says about wisdom in Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23, If you turn at my reproof, behold, I will pour out my spirit to you. I will make my words known to you. You know what God is saying? God is saying, I am wisdom. And I'm coming to you, I'm going to correct you, I'm going to reproof you, I'm going to, I'm going to bring training to your life. And if you, if you will turn, if you will listen to it, I will pour out my spirit. You will flourish like never before if you'll let me take you through some painful reminders of what life is. Again, I was reading Proverbs. Proverbs chapter 3, verses 11 and 12. These are famous verses. By the way, I'm giving you some great parenting verses here. Watch this, parents. Proverbs 3, verses 11 through 12. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This hurts me more than it hurts you. I love you too much to let you get away with it. And a critical dimension of God's love and having a relationship. And by the way, hearing from God. How many of y'all want to hear from God? I want to hear from God. I want to to hear from God every day. I I don't want to feel like that God is silent or God is somewhere far away. God is not the, the, the grandparent who lives in another state who every now and then at holidays sends a check. Not that there's anything wrong with that. I'll take the check from Papa. Amen. And and God is not a policeman ready just to give you a ticket, and he only shows up when you speed. Not that there's anything wrong with policemen. We've got some in our church. Love them. Love you guys. Right? God is not a principal who sits in a principal's office like my office over there in the education building. Not that there's anything wrong with that office or the one who occupies it. 
waiting for you to get, you know, detention and to give you swats like they did back in my day. My principal was a coach, left-handed, took a paddle, eighth grade. Everybody say eighth grade. I got swats in eighth grade. This is my baseball coach. He said, Gutteridge. He always referred to the last name, Gutteridge. Take your wallet and your brush out of your pocket, son. Bend over. Took that, took that, wha-bam! You know what I mean? Maybe that's what's wrong with society today. Maybe we need paddles, right? No, no. God is, a, God is our father, isn't he? He's involved. He's in conversation. He's walking with us even now. He's closer to you and me than the ones that are humans in our life that we love and we hug. If we were hugging the very ones we love right now, our children or our spouses, if I had my arms wrapped around Sherry, baby, God is still closer yet to both her and I. He's so involved and he's speaking. And the question is, are we willing to listen or do we only listen to God when he tells us the things we want to hear? If our hearts are unwilling to listen to the creator who is also father, to the judge who is also savior, if we're unwilling to listen to him in the difficult stuff, then we cannot, listen to me, we cannot flourish. A critical dimension of love is discipline. When we come to Genesis 29 and we begin, let me set up the context of where we're at. We start in verse 1, and verse 1 really sets up uh, the context. And let, let me tell you what verse 1 does. It really sets up the environment that you and I need to walk in before we can receive God's discipline. Before we can receive or rightly hear God's rebuke, we need the, the right environment. we got to take the minor key out and put, it, put the rebuke in a major key. And verse 1 helps us to do that. Now, let me, let me read verse 1 to you really quick. It says here, Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. Now you're like, what's special about that verse? Well, the phrase went on his journey comes from a Hebrew word that literally means lifted up his feet. Lifted up his feet. So it's a a Hebrew idiom. And the Hebrew people used to say, they used to, when they had a skip in their step and they were excited, they would say, I'm lifting up my feet. That means that, that means that when Jacob traveled to the east, to these people, he's got a skip in his step. And we ask ourselves, why does Jacob have a skip in his step? Well, because of what happened to him last week. And what happened to him last week is that God came down via a ladder, didn't he? And the angels were ascending and descending and God met Jacob And God showed Jacob his unconditional love, his undying and unconditional grace. In fact, Jacob experienced the favor of God while he was asleep, not while he was being religious, not while he was doing good works, not while he was being a perfect good boy, but while he was asleep, God just met him right where he was at. And you remember what we said? Jesus said in John chapter 1, Jesus said, I am the ladder by which God comes down to earth. I am the one that connects heaven and earth, and I am the one that connects human beings with God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Remember that? And Jacob experienced the way to God and experienced God saying, I'm with you. I'll never leave you. I'm going to bring you back to the promised land. I am always with you. I will always love you, Jacob. I am in relationship with you, and there is nothing that you could do. Now, listen, 
There is nothing you can do that can separate you from my love through Jesus Christ. Isn't that good news? That's why he's got to skip in his step. Now, the reason why I bring that up is, is, is very important. And it's worth our time kind of talking about this. You need an environment of acceptance with God before you can be rightly corrected by God. Can I get an amen? Because if you think that your justification before God, your salvation before God is going to be determined by your reaction to his discipline, then man, you're going to start walking a very frustrating road of religion. There's two fancy words that all religions have to deal with. Let me give them to you really quick. And forgive me, but it's, it's really worth our time. The first fancy word that all religions have to deal with, including Christianity, is justification. And what justification is, is it's about your position with God. What justifies me in the presence of God? What makes me right Legally right, judicially right with God. What makes me righteous with God? Justification. The second word is sanctification, which comes from a word that means to be holy. And and sanctification is the process of making myself a holy one or a holy person. Now, all religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, has to deal with How am I justified and how am I made into a holy person? Now watch this because some of our forms of Christianity does this. Some of us use our sanctification to make us justified with God. In other words, we think I can't be right with God until I become a holy person in my actions and in my behavior. And so we try to achieve our justification through sanctification. But the gospel is completely different. Now watch this. That ladder. When God came down to Jacob and gave him a skip in the step, what that showed us is that you have to have justification before you can even worry about sanctification. It is your identity in justification by faith alone, through grace, because of Jesus, that gives you a platform to hear from God freely in an environment of acceptance so that you can grow joyfully. But if we try to earn our justification through sanctification, beloved, we will be frustrated, we will be angry, we will become self-righteous, we will we will do all kinds, we'll either be overly confident or too humble, we'll be so beat down with ourselves, or we'll be. See what I'm saying? Jacob is about to be disciplined by God, but God has shown him before he begins to work and correct and train and reprove and train Jacob in righteousness, God shows Jacob first grace before he worries about developing Jacob's character. And that's the way it's got to be with you and I. You see, the gospel is not I obey to be accepted. The gospel is I'm accepted. Now I can work on obedience. That's a really huge point. And so with that environment, Jacob is on his way, and he's got a skip in his step, and he's met Jesus. You know, I got Jesus, and he's singing hymns all of a sudden, and he's on his way. And we remember why he's journeying. Why is, why is he traveling? He's traveling to find his wife. God said, I'm going to let you leave the promised land so you can find a wife. You can't marry the Canaanite women because they have false gods. We've got to get you somebody outside of the promised land. And so Jacob goes to look for his uncle Laban. And, and so as we pick it up, he shows up at a well. Now, back in the old times, if you wanted to find a wife, there was no clubs. 
There was no bars. There was no, like, you know, events. The where you found a wife was at a well. That's what Genesis tells us. And so, and so Jacob comes to a well. And watch what Jacob does in verse 4. It says, he meets the shepherds that are at the well. And Jacob said to him, my brothers, where do you come from? And they said, we are from Haran. And he said, do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, we know him. He said to them, is it well with him? And they said, it is well. See, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. And he said, behold, it is still high day. It is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and pasture them. And Jacob now, see, he's starting to get cocky because he's telling these shepherds how to do their job. So he's already still demonstrating that just because he's met Jesus doesn't mean he's suddenly become a holy one. Can I get an amen? And, you know, when I met Jesus, it wasn't like, I believe in Jesus. Oh, now I'm perfect. La! No, I was still broken, still broken, still being worked on. I'm not what I should be, but I'm not what I was. And I'm not what I'm going to be. Jacob's still got issues, but it gets even better. Look at verse 8. They said to him, don't tell us how to do our job. (laughs) They said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. And there was this large stone that took several shepherds to move so that the sheep could be watered. Verse 9 While he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept out loud. And Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman and that he was Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father. Now, <laughs> this is very unusual. As we remember, this is totally out of character, first of all, because what do we know about Jacob? He's a pretty boy. He's a mama's boy. Remember, Esau was the strong one. Remember, the brother was hairy and strong, could hunt and had the bow. And Jacob was the pretty mama's boy that was always in the kitchen cooking. Amen. And what happens here is as soon as he sees Rachel, what's he do? He flexes. He's like showing off. Suddenly he, can, he moves stones away and look at me. Look at how awesome I am. Then he kisses her. I mean, first date kiss, right? Now, if you're single, never kiss on the first date. It only leads to bad things, amen? She runs off to go tell her. We never learn what Rachel thinks of Jacob ever in the whole book of Genesis. But, man, he is smitten with her. And at first we're like, hey, this is great. Like, Jacob's taking responsibility. He's kind of, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of impressed with him. I mean, this is, this is great. Kind of reminds me of me and Sherry. Hey, Sherry, but, you know, well, we didn't kiss on the first date. But, but when we begin to stop and really think about this story, we see some problems in Jacob's life. And in particular, when I thought about it, what this reminded me of is when Abraham, remember when Abraham sent his servant to go find Isaac's wife, Rebekah? Do you remember that? In Genesis 24. And when he shows up at a well that's very similar, it meets the same family. Here's how the servant responded at the well. In fact, go back. Let's do a flashback and go to Genesis 24 real quick. 
and look at Genesis 24 and verse 12. Here's the servant who is looking for a wife for Isaac. He's looking for Rebekah. He doesn't know it. And in Genesis 24 and 12, the contrast between him and Jacob is insightful. It's a, it's a teachable text. It says here, and he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I shall say, please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink, and I will water your camels. Let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Now what's the difference? The difference is total humility. The difference is a prayer to God. And you know what that servant is saying? That servant showing up to the well. He's bending the knee and he's saying, God, I want your will. I'm not going to look at outward appearances. I'm not going to see the first woman and say, that's the one. I'm not going to run and grab and grasp and control and and make it happen. I'm not going to show up and show off and try to roll away the stone and let everybody know how strong I am. No, I'm going to pray and I'm going to say, God, I want what you want. I want your woman for my servant Abraham's son, Isaac. I want your will done in my life. I want what you want. I want to acknowledge you in all my ways so that my past will be made straight. Jacob doesn't show up at the well with any thought for God. He shows up telling other people how to do their job. He shows up rolling away the stone. He shows up flexing. All of a sudden, he's the strongest man in the world. And it reminds me of a principle. Pride comes before fall, doesn't it? Anybody who's played golf knows that. I made a birdie one time four years ago. I made that birdie, and I knew I was going to the PGA. You should have seen it. I putted. It was a bender. I had this long putt. It was about a 25-footer. I putted it, and it bent. It went up the hill, sloped down slowly, just the right speed, went down and went into the hole. And I felt like Phil Mickelson, except for I'm right-handed. I was like, right on, man. I looked at the guys I was playing with. I was like, right on. What's up? (laughs) You know what I'm saying? Next hole happened, unfortunately. Right, hit it into the woods, lost the ball, dropped the ball, hit it in the other side, like quadruple bogey, do you know what I mean? And then all my guys were looking at me going, well, what's up now, big man? <laughs> Pride comes before the fall. And you know what God's not going to do? Here's what God's not going to do. He is not going to take away the consequences of Jacob's pride. Why? Because he loves Jacob. And what ultimately happens is he says, that's the one for me. And Rachel was not God's woman for him. She was not the one. Leah, the older sister, is the one. But he was impatient to figure out God's will. He's just going to do his life his way. And so he goes to the dad, Laban, who's as slick and as cunning and as problematic as Jacob. And you got these two manipulating men coming together for a business deal. And Laban's like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll let you marry Rachel if you'll work for me for seven years. 
Jacob's like, okay, I'll work for seven years for, for Rachel. So he works for seven years. Fast forward seven years, all this hard labor he does because he's got himself tangled up in a web of manipulation. And after seven years comes the time for the wedding. Now watch this. Skip down to uh, 29 verse 21. Watch this. We call this consequences. My dad told me when I started having children, my dad used to say, uh, retribution. Right? Verse 21, watch this. Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife that I may go into her, for my time is completed. I did my seven years of work for you. That's how it worked in the ancient world. And so Laban gathered together all the people of the place, and they made a feast. Now, if you read in between the lines, there's a lot of alcohol at this feast. This is a jamming party, man. This is rocking. And it says, verse 23, but in the evening he took his daughter, that is Laban did, took his daughter Leah and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to, his, to her servant, as her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not serve you, with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me, says the deceiver? Laban said, it is not so done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Complete the week of this one, and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. How did Laban pull this off? In the, in the, in the darkness of night and with alcohol, and he couldn't see who he was lying with. And, of course, Jacob, we already see, is a very passionate, sensual man. He just kissed her on the first date, goes into the tent consummates a marriage with a woman he can't see in the darkness of the night. And you know what it reminds us of? Him tricking Isaac. And how did he trick Isaac? Because he was blind. He couldn't see. The player gets played. The deceiver gets deceived. The one who's constantly manipulating so easily and so coolly other people gets played by his new father-in-law. And now he's stuck, not for seven years, but for 14 years. You know what we call that? Consequences. He said, man, I want to hear from God. I want some miracles to be dropped down in my life. Don't underestimate the consequential communication of God. God speaks to us sometimes by letting us suffer consequences. It reminds me of a New Testament verse in Galatians chapter 6 where Paul tells a group of Christians that he's exhorted to understand the doctrine of grace, to understand the doctrine of mercy, justification by faith alone, a great book on it, but yet as believers saved by grace, we still are not rid of our consequences for sin. He says in Galatians 6, verse 7, Do not be deceived, those of you who are saved by grace through faith alone. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. Jacob sowed to the flesh, didn't he? 
And now he's reaping consequences. And God is letting him learn that painful lesson. And you know what? For you and I, sometimes we need to stop and go, man, some of the issues in my life, some of the problems I'm experiencing, it's not because I'm a victim of somebody else. It's not because somebody's victimized me and forced me to be like this or to do the things I'm doing. The reason why I'm in what I'm in, it's not because I'm a victim. It's because I have crossed a line God did not want me to cross. And a critical dimension of God's love is to show us that. And for all of others of us, here's the good news. Let me give you some good news from this passage. Some of you, you're on the threshold. You're about to make some big decisions in your life. And some of those decisions might be a temptation to walk into sin or to make a decision this week about what you're going to look at on your computer or what you're going to pull out your credit card and purchase or what you're going to do with your life and your relationships or what you're going to say to that person. And as you're on that threshold, just stop long enough to remember that everything you do has a consequence. The prophet Hosea said to the people of God, if you sow to the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. It doesn't mean you're going to lose your salvation. It doesn't mean that, that God's going to stop loving you. But still, there are consequences. And Jacob has to learn. And as, we, as we're going to continue to see Jacob grow slowly. Everybody say slowly. Whew, very slowly. But this is a building block of God in his life saying, okay, this is what it's like. Now you know what it's like to deceive other people. Now you know why your name's going to ultimately need to change from Jacob to Israel. Now you know why you must be transformed because that is what it feels like to be a deceiving person right there. You're stuck. As we think about these consequences, as we think about Jacob, what's he end up doing? He ends up working another seven years What do you win, Jacob, for this extra seven years? Oh, a second wife, because that's great. I said in the first service, I hope I don't get in trouble for saying this, but we men, because you women are so wonderful and special, we're only made to handle one of you at a time. Can I get an amen? My goodness. The Bible does not say here in Genesis that polygamy is wrong explicitly. It never makes a comment on it, but it shows in the stories, doesn't it, that polygamy always leads to trouble. Jacob wins Leah, and then he wins Rachel. And here's the problem in Jacob's life, ongoing problem. He continues to judge things by outward appearance, and Rachel's a more beautiful woman outwardly. She's got better eyes, she's got a better figure, she's more beautiful, right? Leah is not as beautiful, the older sister is not, not, as, not as pretty. And of course, Leah is dealing with some issues in her life because of that. And so here he's got these two sisters, and we begin to read about their drama. This is when it gets really good. Their drama in Genesis chapter 29, verse 31. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And I I love that because Jacob doesn't like her. Jacob does not like Leah. And she knows that her own husband, whom she does love, doesn't love her. And God says, I see that you're unlovely. I see that you are not quality compared to what Jacob is desiring. And so I am going to give you children. And I think, beloved, that's another beautiful picture of grace, isn't it? Because spiritually, we are unlovely people. 
If you and I are judged by God on our performance, if we are judged on the quality of our hearts and our spirituality and what's really in us, we are not acceptable. But God, in his grace, accepts the unacceptable. And God looks at Leah, and we are like Leah. That is who we are. And he says, my grace and my gospel and my work in this world is to accept those whom the world would never accept as acceptable. And he says to Leah, I love you, and I'm going to give you babies. Now watch these babies, and this is where the Bible begins to recount the birth of the 12 sons of Jacob, who ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. So geographically, uh, historically, theologically, uh, pretty significant foundational stuff. But watch these first four sons born to Leah, and watch how this happens. Look at verse 32. It says, Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben, for she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. Significantly, Reuben means, see, a son. Verse 33, she conceived again and bore a son, and she said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. And again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was called Levi, which means attached. And she conceived again, and she bore a son and, and said, this time I will praise the Lord. Therefore, she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing. Now, there's two things you got to see. First of all, God's dynamic love, undying, amazing, overflowing love for Leah is in the fact that he chooses her over Rachel. That's the first thing. But the second thing is these four sons in particular are the foundation of the priestly and messianic line in Israel. In other words, Jesus is called in Revelation chapter 5 the Lion of Judah, isn't he? And Levi was the foundation of the priestly service. What God has given to Leah is he's saying, I am am making you related to my messianic purposes for the world in a particularly special way. Jesus comes from Abraham. Israel existed to give the world Jesus as its savior. But within Israel, the particular line within Israel is Levi, is Judah, is Simeon. Is Reuben. And what God is saying is, I love you so much that I'm going to relate you to my messianic purpose. And that's a simple, you know what that is? That stands for you and I because when we place our faith in Jesus Christ, we are automatically a descendant of Abraham through Jesus Christ. And we are particularly related to God through that saving line of Reuben and Judah. Isn't that good news? But here's where Leah goes wrong. Despite her salvation, She's still trying to get her acceptance, not from God, watch this now, but from her husband. She's trying to get her love from the acceptance of this man who is never going to give it to her. She's saying, see a son. Maybe now my husband will love me. Maybe if I have another son, then I'll be loved by my husband. You know, it's a sign of us believers. We are constantly trying to go to other things and saviors to love us in ways that only God can love us. Isn't that true? God says, man, I, I, my love is more than enough. My love is more than abundantly 
sufficient for all of your weaknesses and needs. Why do you go and, and work so hard at trying to be fulfilled in other things when my love is more than sufficient? Why do you, why do you trust too much into money or things or what other people think or your appearance? You know, what I, tell, what I want to tell my daughters all the time and, and what I want to tell all girls of the world is like, look, the moment that you don't need a man anymore because of God's love is when you are ready for a man. Can I get an amen? I got two of my daughters here this morning. Amen. Right? And we watch these shows. You know, last night we were watching TV irresponsibly. Amen. We were staying up too late. And we were channel surfing. We started watching on TBS the Steve Martin was getting a Lifetime Achievement Award, and it seemed pretty family-friendly, you know what I'm saying? But man, those commercials, I mean, it's just like R-rated commercials on these TV stations, and you know what they're saying to women? They're saying, if you're not skinny enough, if you're not made up enough, if you're not wearing the right clothes, if men are not attracted to you sensually or sexually, then you are no longer acceptable. And you know what God says? God says to all women, your acceptance by me is more than enough for you. And you don't have to play that silly game of bondage. Because my love is more than enough. But this goes for all of us. You know, we're, we're, we're trusting in sports. We're trusting in things. We keep working hard. We're, we're constantly going, is that enough? Is that enough? Is that enough? And here's the lesson. The lesson is God loves us too much to let anything else fill the emptiness in our life outside of his love. He loves us too much. He is not going to let us be satisfied in anything less than surrendering to his love and saying, God, I need your love to be good enough. And the moment we can do that is the moment we experience contentment and identity. There's four things we're all looking for. I heard somebody say this. I forgot his name, so I'm going to plagiarize. So there it is. Four things we're all looking for. We're all looking for meaning. We're all looking for purpose. We're all looking for identity, and we're all looking for belonging. And we live in a consumer culture, and what consumer culture comes to us and says is, you can have an identity, meaning, purpose, and belonging through the things you purchase and through the people that are impressed with you. And the more people are impressed with you, the more things, the more buying power you have, the more identity, meaning, purpose, and and belonging you will have. And you know what never happens? We never get complete in that, do we? Because it doesn't mean anything. And because we never fully feel like we belong. And our identity is never shaped by something substantive and eternal. And God is saying, I need you to come to me in my grace, my gospel, my love through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. I need you to come to me and get those things from me. I will give them freely to you as you surrender. You will have a new identity in Christ because anyone who's in Christ Jesus is a new creation. Amen. You will have a new life. You will have purpose and mission. You will have belonging to my church. You will have belonging and adopted into my family. I will give you everything you need that the world can never give to you. Leah of the world, come to me and stop working so hard to get get something that I'm I'm ready to give to you right now, freely. I'll give it to you. It's yours. How much time do I have? I see. Okay. 
And then we come, we come to Rachel. Man, this, this stuff, how do you preach this stuff? I don't know. I don't even know what to say. I'm just going to read it. Watch this. This is just so much girl drama. I don't even know. I don't know what to do with chapter 30, but we'll read it because I'm not going to skip it. Chapter 30, verse 1. When Rachel saw that she bore no children, she envied her sister, and she said to Jacob, Give me children or I die. Jacob, brilliantly, I'm being sarcastic, Jacob's anger was kindled against Rachel, and he said, Am I in the place of God, who is withheld from you the fruit of your womb? Nice husband. Wonderful man. Thank you, Jacob, for watching over your wife, for speaking good words into her life, for making her feel safe and wanted and loved like husbands should. Thank you, Jacob, for being such a wonderful, exemplary husband. But no, even to the wife he likes, this is the one he loves. I mean, my goodness, what is he like with poor Leah? Amen? I don't know. Verse 3. Then she said, here is my, oh, this is brilliant. Here is my servant Bilhah, go into her so that she may give birth on my behalf, that even I may have children through her. That is not going to be a good plan. So she gave him her servant Bilhah as a wife, and Jacob went into her. He doesn't object. Brilliant. And Bilhah conceived and bore Jacob a son. Then Rachel said, God has judged me and has also heard my voice and given me a son. Therefore, she, she called his name Dan, which means judgment. Take that. But, of course, she's not satisfied because it never works. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, conceived again and bore Jacob a second son. Then Rachel said, with mighty wrestlings, I have wrestled with my sister and I have prevailed. Take that. And so she called his name Nephtali, which means wrestling. When Leah saw that she had ceased bearing children, she took her servant Zilpah and gave her to Jacob as a wife. Then Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a son, and Leah said, Good fortune has come. So she called this name Gad, which in New York City means God, but here in the Bible it means luck. <laughs> Leah's servant Zilpah bore Jacob a second son, and Leah said, Happy am I, for women have called me happy. So she called this name Asher. Was that, that's a woman going, I'm happy. I'm happy now. But she's not. It gets better. I'm keeping you late, but it's worth it. Verse 14, this stuff is crazy. Verse 14. In the days of wheat harvest, Reuben went and found mandrakes in the field and brought them to his mother Leah. Then Rachel said to Leah, please give me some of your son's mandrakes. Now here's what a mandrake is. In the ancient world, mandrakes were a herb that people thought would bring fertility. Now, of course, this is superstitious. It didn't, and it doesn't, but they thought it did. So Rachel's going to live and say, bring me some of that, those mandrakes. Verse 15, but she said to her, is, is it a small matter that you have taken away my husband? Would you take away my son's mandrakes also? And Rachel said, then he may lie with you tonight in exchange for your son's mandrakes. So she's like, well, give me the mandrakes, and I'll let you sleep with Jacob tonight. This is functional. This is great. Good family stuff. Verse 16. When Jacob came from the field in the evening, Leah went out to him and said, You must come into me, for I have hired you with my son's mandrakes. So he lay with her that night. Now, why, why would God allow this in the Bible, this stuff about the patriarchs? Isn't he the God 
of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Why does he allow this dysfunctional stuff to be just wide open? And here's why. Because we're all dysfunctional like this. We're crazy. Human beings are nuts. Wonderfully nuts. We're made in the image of God. We're, we're the glorious ruins of God is what we are. And God is showing this is the human condition. That's why you need a Savior. Verse 17 God listened to Leah, and she conceived and bore Jacob a fifth son. And Leah said, God has given me my wages because I gave my servant to my husband. And she called his name Issachar. And Leah conceived again, and she bore Jacob a sixth son. Then Leah said, God has endowed me with a good endowment. Now my husband will honor me because I have borne six sons. And she called his name Zebulun. And afterwards she bore a daughter and called her name Dina. Then God remembered Rachel and listened to her and opened her womb, and she conceived and bore a son and said, God has taken away my reproach. And she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. And so you have 11 of the 12 men who would form the 12 tribes of Israel in complete dysfunction, and nobody is satisfied. Everybody is empty, no matter how much achievement. Even Rachel, after she gets her son, finally has a baby, she won't be satisfied. She's going to steal her daddy's gods to take back with her. She's going to be an idol-worshiping woman. And here's the point. We will not be satisfied without God. There is a void in our life that can only be filled by God. And that is a very loving thing for God. To give us restlessness until we rest in him. And as believers, when we have restless nights and we don't feel like we're whole or satisfied and we're trying to find ourselves and we're trying to get what we need to be happy, God won't let us be satisfied until we stop and we put our hands down. I was, I was talking to a friend the other, the other week and we were talking about that great verse in the Bible that says, Be still and know that I am God. And in the Hebrew, when it says be still, it means put your hands down. Put your hands down. Because the whole world is fighting and rolling away stones and having babies and building homes and having a great retirement and doing all the great stuff and wearing all the great clothes. And they got their hands clenched and they're trying to find and make their own salvation. You know what God's saying? He's like, put your hands down and know that I am God. And begin to walk in that identity. It's hurt. This is an intimate, difficult thing that God does in our life. C.S. Lewis said, God whispers to us in our pleasures. God speaks to us in our conscience. But he shouts in our pains. And pain is a megaphone by which God is trying to rouse a deaf world. I am God and there is no other. I am creator and there is no other worthy of worship. I've got like two hours left in this sermon. Like seriously, we're not even to halfway. That was the introduction. And we can do a hand vote, see if you want to stay another hour. Or, yeah, I'll pray. Let's just pray as we close this. God, thank you. I know I'm loved. I know I'm not loved because I'm righteous enough or good enough. I know I'm not loved based on my performance like Jacob, like Leah, like Rachel, trying to grasp and shape and form my own salvation. I know I'm loved because of your son, Jesus, and what he's done. And God, in that 
environment of love, come and discipline me as your son. Discipline us as your sons and daughters. Train us, Lord. May we be restless and empty in all of our achievements until we come and we're satisfied in your love for us. May the consequences of our life, we pray, that graciously they won't overly burden us, but may the consequences remind us that there is such a thing as right and wrong for believers, that there is a way that you have made for us a path where we might flourish. Help us to walk in that way. Help us to walk in that light. And God, thank you for the pain that you've given to our life to remind us to look up. We know without pain in this world, we would never look to you. We would never come to you. We would never surrender. Help us not to waste it but to look to you. Jesus, help us to put our hands down. If you're not a believer, the way to become a Christian is to believe in Jesus Christ, to say, you are the ladder, you are the grace, you are the love, you are the house of God, you are the temple, you are the church, you are the one who saves me. Come to him and call out to his name and begin to walk this walk in his love that is filled with compassion, but truth, mercy, and justice. And be transformed by it. Let's stand and worship him today.